0: From downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. And this is episode two of The Medicine Club titled The Attire Strikes Back. Now, uh, with the hilarious pun that we put into the episode title, um, you've probably uh, figured out that one of the interesting topics that we're going to discuss today is personal protective equipment and its role in combating the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, The first question I have to you, Kashif, is uh, personal protective equipment. Um, How important is it with respect to, uh, to not just protecting the people who are uh, involved in the care of patients with COVID-19, but in combating the, uh, the pandemic?
1: Oh, I think it's uh, life or death. Uh, we've seen um, what happened to the first wave of workers in Wuhan, and now we're seeing the process repeat itself in, in Italy. You're seeing dozens of uh, physicians have already, have already passed away. Um, many of these didn't have any access to PPE. They didn't have gloves or masks. And you even see it in the videos that you can see from the intensive care units that they don't have uh, proper equipment. Um, the lessons from SARS, in Ontario we had the SARS Commission, and I think there was a lack of PPE, lack of um, you know proper uh, protocols for that uh, did lead to um, deaths and to uh, healthcare workers contracting the illness.
0: Do you think that... Um um personal protective equipment is uh, at least in our jurisdiction is it uh um adequate with respect to what we can expect for supply over the next uh, little while or is this um on online you're seeing you know stories of uh, hospitals potentially running out of basic items you're seeing uh fist fights between hospital workers on videos on twitter yeah, it's, in,
1: it's incredible like what we're seeing like i was told Uh, that the hospitals that I'm associated with have between one and three weeks of supply of masks. And basically, we were told that, you know, just don't wear them because, you know, it's droplet. You can stay six feet away. You'll be fine. But really, that decision is being driven by a lack of supply. And when you look into why the supply is constricted, you have to look at the crisis in China. Basically, the the Hubei and Wuhan shutdown and then uh, the uh, overall shutdown in China every Person in the country was using surgical masks, uh, you know, several times a day. So that you know is a demand of a billion or more masks per day. That eats up all of the production of surgical masks. Now that conditions are improving in China, we're starting to see the same Chinese resellers everywhere um, selling masks back to hospitals here, uh, with obviously prices uh, that are going up as hospitals are outbidding each other. But I wonder, like, can we really trust? overseas or uh, chinese suppliers after the supply shock that led to these problems many of these um, italian physicians would probably still be alive if they had access to this equipment and i wonder if this is a long-term issue if health canada should or and the equivalent u.s authorities should require that these items be made domestically so that this kind of issue does not happen again It was a tremendous
0: lesson learned in terms of uh, emergency, absolutely essential equipment and where it's obtained from for us to, to learn moving forward. It's Uh,
1: incredible. Like I think, you know, globalization is killing people like the, and we're seeing it now. And I think this is a lesson that needs to be learned. Now the question is um, personal protective equipment to healthcare workers.
0: Um, Atul Gawande had uh, an article in the New Yorker two days ago, and we'll we'll put the link on the, uh, on the, on the, on the Twitter page um, wherein he discussed the differences between um, Singapore and Hong Kong and what appears to be going on in the United States with respect to the pandemic. And one of the things he highlighted was stemming um, disease transfer through healthcare workers, through personal protective equipment.
1: So I think, yeah, it's it's a key feature that I think is being lost is that basically he's requiring, he's highlighting that every healthcare worker in the systems in those two countries wears a mask throughout their workday. They don't pass droplets onto each other. Patients also are wearing um, a similar mask, and they're also wearing a mask in public areas. They're mask-shamed if they go into public transit or public areas without a mask. So that's basically brought this epidemic under control. And I think we won't achieve the same goals unless we adopt the same methods here. We need to encourage the... uh, everyone to wear masks uh, even homemade ones and we need every healthcare worker needs to wear a surgical mask throughout the entire time they're in their healthcare institution
0: so how do we do this if there's no
1: capacity for masks in one to three weeks as sort of is being predicted then i think you know we'll have to improvise like my uh, i've i know some residents in the states um you know they have very limited testing capability but they know the virus is everywhere and everyone's home sewing cotton masks there's a paper which we'll attach in the show notes, um, which shows it's not amazing. It's not going to, be, it's not going to filter um, you know, micron particles as a surgical mask, but we're dealing with droplets anyway. So any, any barrier that patients and staff can wear is better than nothing. I think all North Americans should be encouraged to make their own masks at home. You can use coffee filters, staples, rubber bands. Uh, you know, bandanas, as the F- as CDC mentioned in one of their recent guidance documents. Um, I think values have to change and every single person needs to be covering their nose and their mouth.
0: So this isn't just uh, two guys on a new podcast who are uh, talking about this. This is the CDC recommendation to use makeshift articles like bandanas in order to cover one's uh, one's
1: face. Exactly. I saw uh, there was an interesting tweet from the CEO of uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital in which they mentioned the amount of mask usage they would require. And I think the estimate was 70,000 surgical masks per day for their 2,700 beds. So if you do the math, it works out to, for any institution, about 25 masks per bed. Um, So for my hospital, which has about 1,000 beds, we need about 25,000 masks a day. So that's a tall order. And can you imagine in our province, 14 million people, if each of them needs to wear one mask every day. That kind of production um, is, doesn't exist yet and it probably needs to be wrapped up soon.
0: What's amazing also is the, uh, the stop cap solutions that have been uh, um, uh, created in a rapid period of time that we're hearing about on the Internet, particularly from Twitter. Um, in order to try to create some supply of personal protective equipment until supplies um, supply chains start to come from other places.
1: Oh, you're um, seeing such amazing activity. Like you're seeing sewing clubs are getting together to sew cotton masks. You're seeing uh, volunteer and donation drives. And I think you're seeing, if this is a war, you're seeing like the best of a war effort in which the population is coming together.
0: I want to highlight uh, just a couple of them. There's a... Uh, um, our friend and colleague um, from Physiatry, Haman uh, Buen, um, along with uh, one of his colleagues, um, set up community communitysos.org. Uh, um, this is an intake form in order to ascertain where needs are for uh, personal protective equipment and then try to link that up with uh, supplies when they become available. We'll put the link uh, to that inside the uh, Twitter as well. Um, we, but we've heard of efforts from all over the United States um, and at all levels from, you know, medical students, to other healthcare workers, to people unrelated to healthcare, to Elon Musk donating all the N95s in uh, uh, the Tesla factory across to
1: UCLA's hospitals. Wow, that it. hopefully it makes a difference, but I think ultimately production needs to come back to North America, and it needs to come quickly. They're not complicated things to make. Um, you know, I think all the pulp and paper used in Asia to make these masks actually comes from here, so... You know, I mean, we're just using our own resources again.
0: We'll take a break here on the Medicine Club, and then we're going to go on to our second topic, which is uh, ventilators and ventilator needs. Uh, the second topic we wanted to discuss was uh, uh, ventilators. Um, as we've been seeing from uh, around the world, individuals with COVID-19 become inordinately ill uh, at a significant uh, percentage of times and require assistance with respect to ventilation. The issue with uh, non-invasive uh, ventilatory strategies we learned from SARS was that there actually is a rate of transmission of virus particles to those that are inside the room from aerosolization. So this was a practice that really was uh, deprecated. And also it may not be entirely effective in, or, or as effective as the mechanical ventilation with a degree of ARDS that's seen in individuals with COVID-19.
1: There's some, a fairly high failure rate um, in Italy for non-invasive ventilation. Um, but, uh, but I
0: wanted to pass things along to Kashif to talk about um, his experiences with respect to uh, ventilators and, uh, and Odyssey in terms of um, determining how many ventilators uh, we need in our jurisdiction of Ontario and finding ways to leverage officials in order to try to obtain these.
1: So I think all of us in critical care and emergency medicine were galvanized by reports that came started streaming out of Italy about two to three weeks ago. Uh, harrowing scenes that we saw, like people dying and without ventilators, uh, people, harried staff, and then just bone-chilling accounts. So that motivated you know, a large group of physicians um, who started self-organizing on social media. I joined one of these groups, and then we basically pulled every connection we could to try to get through to government officials, to try to really get them to, onto this sense of urgency. And it seemed like Maybe around the time, maybe about a week ago, maybe a little bit over a week ago, they listened. Um, maybe it timed with the prime minister's wife getting sick, who knows. But uh, it seems the government started taking this seriously around the world around the same time. And I think I think physician input had a lot to do with that. So what we found was that the government of Canada has purchased about 500 ventilators. Ontario bought about 300. Um, different industry groups, engineering groups have come together from now idle plants that they want to start producing critical medical equipment. A big issue in Canada has been that there's no uh, local company that makes ventilators. And uh, there's they haven't been able to convince any company to share a design. So there's a whole bunch of different efforts by different companies to try building basic ventilators. So we'll see. Um, I think one one group is thinks they're going to be ready in about two weeks or so. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, now, in estimating the numbers that we need, there's a research group called the ModCollab, uh, based out of uh, UHN and Sunnybrook, that's been doing um, forecasts based on, you know, uh, epidemiological curves for epidemics in Italy and China, and they have they've calculated as of yesterday a number of scenarios. Um, they think that if we go the full Italian scenario, we're going to max out our resources um, by The beginning of April, end of March, and ultimately we're going to need 2,500 ICU beds by day by mid-April, and you know uh, Ontario only has about a thousand ICU beds, so that's going to be far in excess of our capability. If the social distancing that was enacted about a week ago um, allows only a 15% growth in cases, then you know that's a good scenario. We'll only need 300 ICU beds for COVID cases. If there's 25% uh, growth, then we'll need about 1,200 ICU beds, which is all of our ICU beds. Uh, but still, you know, if you extend out to uh, ORs or CCUs or PACUs, it's still doable, but it would be an incredible strain. Uh, so the next few days will tell, like which pathway that we're following. Uh, we'll highlight, um, you know, the groups of uh, that's been estimating this uh, uh, links in our in our show notes. Um, you mentioned that. Um we
0: have uh, we have experiences from Italy that uh, we basically don't want to replicate. Um, has has that experience been brought across to North America um, in terms of uh, uh, lessons that we can learn and things that we can do differently, aside from what you mentioned with respect to estimating supply and uh, and social distancing to try to ensure that we meet that supply?
1: So it's interesting uh, that you asked that. There is a, um, a webinar two days ago posted by the European Society. Uh, European Critical Care Society, and it was basically a first-hand account by two uh, intensivists from Milan, Antonio Pisanti and Massimo Montanelli. and they sort of described deluge that became uh, February 20th uh, with one case, and then February 21st, 36 cases of pneumonia the next day, and then a cascade that basically forced them to uh, go from their 700 existing ICU beds in Lombardy then extending that 50% and adding uh, hundreds of extra beds. Um, By two weeks later, they had, by March 7th, they had 482 ICU beds just for coronavirus patients, representing 60% of their pre-outbreak capacity. Uh, They started using um, a lot of CPAP um, uh, for their cases, but that had a fairly high failure rate, a 75% failure rate. They um, basically wanted to highlight the importance of preparation in this webinar, and we'll include the links um, to that webinar in our show notes.
0: Now let's, um, let's talk about perhaps a little bit more difficult discussion. Let's, let's say we aren't able to match uh, capacity up with uh, demand for, uh, for ventilators. This, this brings up the very difficult question of, of how do you decide who to put um, into critical care, who do you decide to put on a ventilator and um, other jurisdictions, well, Italy's had to made, make um, a very serious and very challenging ethical decisions on finding some sort of a, um, a way in order to ration out uh, ventilators.
1: It's very interesting. I think many re- you listeners would recall Yasha Monk's article in The Atlantic about uh, startling guidelines that the Italians produced um, you know, comparing the situation to disaster medicine and that uh, applying principles of quote unquote natural justice to try to favor patients who uh, would probably have longer life expectancies uh, and then, you know, basically leaving older patients with many to, uh for palliative care. Uh, there's been a, a discussion in other critical care societies. There's been the NICE guidelines from the UK. There's suggestions that they might use something called the clinical frailty score. Uh, with a uh, f- uh, score of five or above, which means needs significant help with ADLs and needs um, uh, gate assistance, etc. cetera. Uh, there was um, a comparison paper uh, in the UK that compares um, the Ontario health plan for the influenza pandemic, the OPIP, uh, versus the New South Wales triage protocol uh, in deciding these cases. And these basically use a number of exclusion criteria and SOFA scores. To decide who gets a ventilator, we'll include the links to that as well. Eventually, these things will need to be solved at the political level. I've already seen on various critical care discussion forums and listservs that in the UK, where some physicians have faced manslaughter charges, there's a very strong unwillingness uh, to solve this or, or discuss this problem or make these decisions without some kind of political cover. I'm not sure the same situation applies in Canada, but um, I think this is a debate that needs to happen sooner than later. And patients, found, uh, doctors should discuss with their patients, you know, advanced directives and things like that.
0: I think it, we even take a step beyond that and say that, um, you know, these are extremely challenging discussions. But for our entire um, audience, now is the time to be having difficult end of life discussions with family members and loved ones, indicating specifically what you want done in the um, you know, the terrible circumstance, if God forbid it happens, um, that you or one of your loved ones needs to um, be placed into a decision where um, you get critical care support or not, make make that decision up front and make it now in, in the context of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, what doesn't help is the large variation in survival uh, survivability from um, ventilated patients. Some studies show 50% mortality, some 97% mortality. It's you know, we're going to need more data. I think we're going to get it from the UK and from France, as along with Italy, as soon. So that'll give us more, a better idea of what, uh, what to expect. And just today, um, um,
0: Andrew Cuomo in, uh, in New York is uh, um, uh, espousing a strategy of triage or triage officers for uh, ventilators. Um, indeed, the New York criteria, uh, given the tremendous volume of cases that are being uh, seen in that state, will probably be come up for discussion in the next uh, couple of days as something that may practically need to be applied.
1: You know, what's interesting is uh, in that odyssey for searching for ventilators, one of my contacts was saying uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, reps were in China buying thousands and thousands of ventilators from every wholesaler possible. So that's, I guess, what their approach is going to be. Expand capacity massively and then triage appropriately, I guess.
0: Okay, we'll take another break now and then we're going to move on to our third and final topic for today's episode and that's uh, new therapies and uh, what the evidence is behind them. And we're back for uh, the third topic here on today's episode of uh, uh, The Medicine Club um, and that topic is therapies for COVID-19 and the literature that's been coming out and the practical experience that's been coming out for therapies uh, for individuals with COVID-19. Uh, the first um, um uh, set of therapies, the one that's been really talked about, I think, the most on social media, and that's been questioned with respect to the validity of its literature, and that's led to people hoarding some of the supplies has been uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in combination.
1: Well, not just know. social media, but Trump, too, I guess. he's yeah, Trump, too, yes. <laughs> he's hoarder-in-chief right now. But uh, so the uh, origin of this interest, uh, you know, it's been hydroxychloroquine's been part of Chinese treatment protocols uh, for a couple months now. And a recent preprint paper, not peer-reviewed, uh, from Marseille, France, by Philippe Gautret and colleagues, um, had a small study. I think each arm had uh, 20 or 26 uh, patients, and they found a decrease in viral load in the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin arm. Uh, the issues are is that um, in the, the treatment arm, they, uh, they excluded six patients that uh, worsened uh, for some reason. Um, and then, uh, they didn't really explain why. Um, and they didn't test, um, you know, one third of the control group for viral clearance. So there's a lot of questionable issues with this paper and it, and I should stress again, it's a preprint paper. It wasn't peer reviewed. Uh, other issues, um, there was another French, um, team reported some issues with NSAIDs, uh, as a correlation as worsening, uh, symptoms of coronavirus. So that, uh, there's been no evidence of that, um, And then the WHO came out against it. Now, the controversy around ARBs and ACE inhibitors, the issue is that the virus binds to ACE2 receptors in the lungs. And the theory is that maybe these ACE inhibitors that block ACE1 increase the expression of ACE2. There hasn't been much data on this either here or there. Uh, Maybe there's some evidence that shows it actually protects. Who knows? Uh, There's nothing uh, definitive from there. There was a recent... uh, uh, paper that uh, looked at coletra or lopinavir, but this paper uh, you know, didn't show a benefit, but it was also fairly underpowered. And I think there was heavy use of steroids in the treatment arm and not in the placebo arm, I think 30 versus 12%. So that might've confounded things. So that still needs to be checked with a proper trial.
0: Coletra was actually being used heavily though, right? In, uh, in Korea?
1: I think it's still still being used heavily, and I think they're finding good effect with it. So I think we'll we'll have to wait and see uh, more published data. Uh, but you know, I don't think it causes any harm, I guess, on patients. Um, sorry, I was mentioning a favipiravir. It's a Japanese antiviral. Um, I think it was developed for influenza, and I think there's been some early uh, promising results with that. So we'll have to see. Uh, IL six inhibitor uh, tocilizumab, Actemra. Uh, Also looks fairly promising, um, but studies have uh, had very small sample sizes and no comparison groups. An interesting development is the Chinese have started using convalescent plasma. So this is antibodies gleaned from survivors, and they actually sent something like 50 tons of it to Italy. So this could be a stopgap solution. If there's a large outbreak in in North America, we could start harvesting uh, convalescent plasma it has been used in previous outbreaks. Uh, so that's something that needs to be discussed further.
0: So it's a very interesting, very different mechanisms of action. So antivirals versus uh, things to stop a massive inflammatory c- t- cascade like uh, and anti-IL-6 versus um, you know, antibodies uh, in in, uh, in convalescent plasma. It's uh, amazing the innovation that occurred so rapidly.
1: I think you've got the whole planet uh, focusing on this one problem. Um, a lot of, a lot of research, you know, in one week, you're seeing uh, dozens and dozens of papers published. So we're going to keep seeing this rapid pace of innovation next week. Probably things will be completely different. Fantastic. So that, that's it for
0: our uh, our second episode of the Medicine Club, uh, The Attire Strikes Back. Um, for the next episode, we've got uh, Dr. Alberto Goffi, a uh, special guest from uh, um, the Departments of Medicine and Department of Critical Care at the University of Toronto, who's my colleague at St. Michael's Hospital, In critical care, Um, we'll be discussing a little bit uh, about his uh, experiences and thoughts with respect to the critical care strategy toward uh, COVID-19. And in terms of frequency of these podcasts, Kashif and I have uh, a lot of uh, topics that we have uh, in mind uh, for the future with respect to uh, uh, presenting to you. So we're aiming to get get them out at a little bit more of a uh, frequent interval over the course of the next. uh, a couple of weeks as the uh, the COVID pandemic evolves.
1: You know, Samir, it's like we have nothing better to do. Neither does anyone else, actually. It's it's, a,
0: it's benefits of social isolation, but I think both of us are uh, are working at least to a certain extent. I'm on the service at St. Mike's, so I think this will be the uh, to, I guess the closest to the frontline work that I'll have to do at least for now.
1: Yeah, I think our um, you know the projections are saying the peak is going to start coming in about eight nine days. So and fingers crossed. Hopefully, we get through it and. We'll talk to you guys then, hopefully. Take care.